Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 to 15, for our scripture reading. Again, Isaiah 43, 10 to 15, that's our scripture reading. Our sermon passage this morning is John 13, verses 18 to 30. However, I will begin reading at the beginning of the chapter of John 13, just to give us a little more of the context there. So again, Isaiah 43, 10 to 15 is our scripture reading. Our sermon passage is John 13, verses 18 to 30, but we'll begin reading at verse 1. Brothers and sisters, you have the blessing and the privilege of sitting under the reading of God's Word. Don't think of this simply as some book that somebody is doing a public reading from in front of you, gathered in front of a a fairly decently sized group of people. You have to understand that this is the word of the Lord. That it is He who speaks to you. Hear His word now. Isaiah 43, 10-15. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon... And bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now turning to John chapter 13, of course our focus is on 18 to 30. We'll begin at verse 1. Now now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and, he was, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand it now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put, his, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And that after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for what we have heard. We're thankful that we can sit in this air-conditioned room on a hot Lord's Day morning, the 1st of August, at relative ease, and hear your word read to us. We confess, O Lord, that far too often we take your word for granted. Each of us has multiple copies of your word. We have it on our phones on our computers. Help us never to forget what a great blessing it is, not only to read it individually, individually, but especially, O Lord, to do what your people have done for thousands of years, sit and hear your word read. May we cherish it in our hearts. We pray, O Lord, that we would similarly be thankful for your word as it is preached. We pray that you would help each and every one of us to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray for the one who preaches. That he would give all glory to God. That he would preach that which is true. And we pray for the ones who hear. That you would help us to hear you. That you would help us to accept what is true. That you would help us to apply it to ourselves, to our lives. That by your spirit, we would change in ways that we need to change. That we would grow in our knowledge and our understanding. That we would refine our behavior. Lord, please bless us. Help us to glorify your name as your word is now preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've just heard all of chapter 13, or the first at least 30 verses of chapter 13. And you heard those first the first half of the verses of John 13 and the description there of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. 
And it's in this exchange, uh, or in the, in the narrative of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, that there's an exchange between Peter and Jesus in verses 6 to 10, before he'd finished washing all of his disciples' feet. And he told Peter here, and he's speaking in the plural when he says this, he says, you, or y'all, are clean. Now we know that Jesus regularly would have used that conjunction. What a great and helpful word it is, y'all. Y'all are clean already, he's saying. But Jesus hadn't finished washing the feet of all 12 of the disciples. And of course, one of the 12 would prove to be one who was not actually clean, not in the way that Jesus was referring to here, because Jesus, of course, was referring to spiritual cleansing. And so over the course of our passage this morning, what we heard was uh, making it clear that the washing of the, of the disciples' feet, that it symbolized the spiritual cleansing of the disciples, though, as Jesus makes clear, not all of them. There was the exception, of course, who was Judas, about whom John had already said back at the beginning of chapter 13 in verse 2 that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And so the groundwork in those first uh, 17 verses, it's already been laid for what takes place in our passage this morning when the traitor will be revealed to the rest of the disciples. Now Jesus says in verse 18 that he knows whom he has chosen. But then he says one of those whom he has chosen will turn against him. In other words, one of those whom Jesus chose to be his disciples, as he said back in chapter 6, verse 70, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil, will prove not to be among the chosen. Even though Judas will betray him, what we learn from this passage is that Jesus is still in control. Judas was chosen for this purpose. His betrayal and death were not by mere chance. And that brings us to what I want you to, to think about, to consider, to carry with you as we work our way through this passage today. All things happen so that the salvation of God's elect will infallibly come to pass. Let me say that again. It's a fairly simple, straightforward statement. And yet there are many in the church widely who would disagree with it. But let me say it again. All things happen so that the salvation of God's elect will infallibly come to pass. I've divided the sermon into three parts. The first, that you may believe I am He. The second, the bitter bread of betrayal. And the third, in the bosom of Jesus. So again, the first point of the sermon, that you may believe I am He. The second, the bitter bread of betrayal. And the third, in the bosom of of Jesus. So let's turn to the first point of the sermon that you may believe I am He. In order for people to be saved from just condemnation for their sin, certain events must happen according to plan, on schedule, without mistake. Let me think about that for a moment. Think about your own experience and how the Lord brought you to saving faith and repentance. Think about it. All of the things that had to have lined up in your life in order for those events to take place, in order for that one event to take place. And in fact, as you start tracing things back, you'll start to realize that things were taking place before you were born to ensure that you would hear the gospel on such and such a date, at such and such a time, in such and such a place. God has orchestrated things in such a way that it all happens 
perfectly. There is no margin for error when it comes to the salvation of God's people. But the events that will unfold after this dinner, there in that upper room, on the night before Jesus was crucified, these events that take place make it seem like, at least for the moment, that everything is a failure. This dinner at which Jesus had just washed his disciples' feet and was now once again reclining with them was the last supper of Jesus and his disciples. This was the dinner at which he would institute the Lord's Supper. In which he said, do this in remembrance of me. The events of chapter 13, the foot washing, the institution of the Lord's Supper, they point to the fact of our spiritual cleansing by the blood of Jesus poured out for us on Calvary. Now the disciples don't understand what's taking place in these moments. They don't understand the significance of the foot washing. They don't understand the significance of this exchange with Judas. They're unclear what it means. But after his betrayal, and especially after Christ's death and his resurrection, they will understand that it happened for a reason. That it happened according to this plan that they don't know too much about, but that they know there is one. And that's why Jesus says what he does in verses, verse 18 and following. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now the disciples know that Jesus handpicked each and every one of them. And so when he says, I know whom I have chosen, they're thinking of the twelve, this particular group of people within a a broader group of disciples who've been following Jesus around. There are a number of people who follow Jesus who are counted among the disciples generally, but there were twelve people whom Jesus specifically chose to be his disciples. But he's making an exception here. He's making it clear. He's not speaking about all of them when he says, I know whom I have chosen. Though he chose all of them to be disciples, not all of them are his people. Not all Israel is true Israel. He shows them that the betrayal of Judas was foretold in the Old Testament and it had to be fulfilled. And so he quotes part of Psalm 41 verse 9, which reads in full, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And at the very least, what this means is that this close friend in whom he had trusted, this close friend with whom he had shared his bread, he's turned his back to Jesus. His heel is facing Jesus, not his face. But what Jesus is telling them is don't be alarmed. The betrayal by one of you of me has always been a part of the plan. It was foretold in the Old Testament. David is the writer of Psalm 41. The great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. But it was about Jesus whom David wrote. Now Jesus is telling them in verse 9, he's saying in verse 9 that he's telling them so that when the betrayal does take place, rather than regarding Jesus as a failure, rather than regarding his mission as a failure, failure, they will believe that I am he, as he puts it there in verse 19. And that phrase at the end of verse 19, it's important. It's one of the I am statements that's found littered throughout the Gospel of John. When Jesus refers to himself as I am, he is making a reference to God's covenantal name, Yahweh. 
as first told to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. Now, interestingly, among the major English translations, only the NIV translates this phrase in such a way that the reader would catch the, the reference, the connection. The NIV reads, you will believe that I am who I am. So I think in that way, the NIV is very helpful there. It shows a clear connection between verse 18 or verse 19 of our passage in Exodus 3:14. This reference that makes that Jesus makes to the I am of Exodus 3:14 in conjunction with him speaking about knowing those he has chosen, it reassures the disciples that he is in sovereign control. That nothing that happens over the next 24 hours and beyond is by chance. But his use of the I am is also a reference to our scripture passage that we read just before the sermon passage, Isaiah 43.10 and following in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it uses this Greek phrase that's in our passage. In Isaiah 43.10 we read, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. And in that passage in Isaiah 43, God is proclaiming His sovereignty. He's proclaiming His almighty power. That passage in Isaiah is a a passage that reassures the Israelites in captivity that God is still sovereign over them and their enemies and that He is going to rescue them from out of their enemies. And Jesus is giving the same encouragement to His disciples in our passage. He's saying to them, though, it looks like everything is about to fall apart. When one of our own, when one of the twelve betrays me, and the soldiers show up, and they arrest me, and you think it's all over, just remember, it's all happening according to plan. When they see the traitor betray Jesus, they will have even more reason to believe that Jesus is the great I am, because they will know it's happening according to what the Lord had set forth in His eternal decrees. And that after this, though John doesn't cover this in his gospel, we know from the other gospels that after this, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He sets it up. He says, do this in remembrance of me until I return. Do this. And still, even to this day, we are doing this. We're remembering what He's done. We're remembering His sacrifice on the cross. We're reminded of the great washing that we have by His blood as He shed it for each of those whom He has chosen. Each of us whom He knew. That brings us to the second part of the sermon, the bitter bread of betrayal. We read after in verse 21 that after Jesus said these things, He was troubled in his spirit. And then he went on to make plain what he had spoken of indirectly in verse 18. The reason that he was troubled in spirit is that one of the twelve disciples, those who were closest to him, would betray him. And of course, I mean, imagine yourself in the same context. Who is it? Is it it going to be me? Who Who will be the one who betrays you? We have to remind ourselves of the setting. You may be familiar with how ancient people in that day would eat. Sometimes in our household, we have a, a children uh, who decide to recline at table. But it's not quite exactly the same way. In this case, in, in this era, they had, would have a, a set of, of three couches, not couches that we know in common. It was more like a, almost a platform raised. 
There were three of them in a U-shape. The one in the center, that was the head table. That was where the host of the feast would sit at one of these gatherings. And, and there would be several people on each of the couches. Uh, at the head couch, which was in the middle of the U-shape, that was where Jesus was seated. Along with John, the one who's described as the disciple whom he loved, and Judas. Now, the reason that scholars think that Judas must have been at the head couch was because had he been seated anywhere else, Jesus could, could not have reached him to give him a piece of bread. We know from the description of where John was that he leaned back against Jesus. Now, imagine this. You're, you're on these couches, these sort of platforms, large, large footrests, very, very large footrests where multiple people could lay down on. They would lay with their head on their left hand. Their heads were facing the table, feet away from the table. You don't want your feet being the closest thing to the table, especially in that culture, even after a foot washing. And they would lay sort of lined up with their heads on the table, uh, on, the, on the couch nearest the table. They would eat with their right hands. Well, we read that John lay, leans back against Jesus' chest, against his bosom. And so the only other place that Judas could have been in order for Jesus to dip the bread and hand it to him was behind him. What's more, the head couch was a place where honored guests of the host would sit with the host. Now it's understandable that the one who's described in the Gospel of John as the beloved disciple, that he would be at the head couch. But Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, he's there as we said, he's behind Jesus. He's in the, great, the, the position of greatest trust. The disciple whom Jesus loved is at his side, literally on his bosom. Judas was behind him. And so Jesus knew, obviously, what Judas was going to do, and yet he allowed him to be at his back to guard him, as it were. It's as if Jesus is giving Judas one last chance, in a sense. He's showing to the one who he knows will betray him. He's showing him trust. He's showing him love. And that makes Judas' betrayal that much worse. But it also shows that nothing could happen to Jesus before the appointed time. 13.2 says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And after Jesus said that one of them would betray him, the apostle John in verse 25 asks, who is it? And Jesus answered in verse 26, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And he dipped the piece of bread into into the cup. And he gave it to Judas behind him. And it's after that we read in verse 27 that Satan entered into Judas. That is that Satan possessed Judas. And not only has Jesus honored Judas by having him sit with him, beside him, behind him at the table, but he honored him further by dipping the piece of bread and handing it to Judas. According to one commentator, in those societies, it's a mark of special favor for the host to dip a piece of bread in the common sauce dish and hand it to a guest. And the bread that they were eating there, that they were partaking of, because it it was the Passover meal, it was unleavened. And the sauce into which it was dipped was made with bitter herbs, leaving a fitting taste in the mouth of the one who would turn traitor and forsake Jesus. But as some commentators have mentioned, Jesus was making one last offer of reconciliation to Judas, a final gesture of supreme love. 
And notice this, that Judas took the bread. He, he took the handout. He ate it. But he rejected the love that accompanied it. And it was at that point that Satan entered into him, that Satan possessed him. And that brings us to the third point of the sermon, in the bosom of Jesus. Now going back to the beginning of our passage for just a moment, remember that Jesus told his disciples he knew whom he had chosen. And then in verse 20 he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now Jesus is speaking of the unity that he has not only with the Father, the one who sent him, but also with the ones he sends out. The ones he sends are his chosen ones. And those whom he chose, those whom he sends out, are to him as he is to his Father who sent him. And so what he says here is to receive his messengers, to receive his disciples, to receive these apostles, is to receive him. And to receive him is to receive his Father. And in all of this, we see the striking way, in a striking way, the closeness that Jesus has with those whom he has sent. And also, when you think about it in the context of the institution of the Lord's Supper, it shows this picture of great unity that believers are to have, not only with Jesus Christ, but with one another. Now we read in verse 22 that one of Jesus' disciples, the one Jesus loved, John, he was reclining at Jesus' side. And this phrase, as we've seen it in the original Greek, it means in the bosom of Jesus. Now, given that John lived late into the first century, he was pretty, likely pretty young at this point. He might have been a, a middle to older teenager at this point. He was probably like a son to Jesus in many ways. And when Peter asked John to ask Jesus whom it was that he was talking about who would betray him, we read in verse 25 that the beloved disciple, he leaned back against Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. The Apostle John is leaning against the chest of his creator. Think about that. And think about this. That if you are united to Jesus Christ, you have the same closeness with your creator. Now we need to say something for a moment here. As an aside, I think it's important in our hypersexualized society... That there are no sexual overtones in this passage. I don't think it necessarily needs to be said to, to y'all, but it's going to be reassured of this. As one commentator said, given John's Jewish context, any implied sexual relationship between John and Jesus would have been impossible, regardless, if set aside for the moment, that Jesus is the creator, that he is God in the flesh. It would not have happened. So not some sort of scandalous thing that was taking place. It's a shame that it even needs to be said, and yet because of our current cultural context... So many want to read sexual overtones into innocuous passages like this to promote their own agenda. But to do that completely obscures the real implications of this passage. Jesus welcomes sinners into close, intimate fellowship with him. He welcomes us to walk with him closely. He even allowed the one who would become his chief enemy to, to cover his back. Judas had his six. And ultimately, Judas would betray that trust. But among those, for those whom Jesus had chosen, he did this to ensure that those who, uh, whom he chose would receive eternal life with him. Now, one other thing that we need to note, and this is a bit of a side note, but important nonetheless. Some of you may be worried about this. 
Let me ask with a somewhat rhetorical question. Into whom was it that Satan entered? Well, of course it was Judas Iscariot. Why Judas? What was different about Judas compared to all of the other disciples, the eleven? He was not one whom Jesus had chosen, at least not chosen unto salvation. Yes, it is true, Jesus chose him to be one of his disciples. But even back in chapter 6, when John describes, he narrates this, uh, this historical uh, um, incident when Jesus chooses Judas, he makes it very clear, even from the very beginning, that Judas would be the one who would later betray him. And so he was chosen to be one of his disciples, yes, but not to be saved. And that's why he could sit for three years under Jesus' teaching and still get up from the table, from the couch that he shared with Jesus, and betray him to the Roman soldiers. And that leads us to another question, which hopefully will be reassuring to you and to me. Whom did Satan not enter? Whom did he not possess? All those who had been chosen by Jesus for salvation. Now what can we infer from this? How may we apply this to our very lives? There may have been a time in your life, if you're old enough, you might have been worried that somehow you were possessed. That somehow you were so under the heavy influence of Satan or one of, uh, one of the demons that they had control over you. Well, the truth is that neither Satan nor his demons can enter into, can possess those who belong to Jesus Christ. It's not possible. Then, as, as, as now, Satan is under the sovereign control, under the power of Jesus Christ. And so if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. And we know that it's not possible for Satan and God to dwell within the same person. You are marked by the Holy Spirit. You have angels in attendance who provide protection for you. You rest safely in the hands of Jesus. You do not need to fear the powers of hell nor of Satan himself. And so take great comfort from this inference from our passage. That while Satan could touch Judas, he could not touch any of the other, any of the other disciples. And if you are in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, he can't touch you, not in the same way that he did Judas. You rest in his bosom. You are under his protection. Though Satan would love nothing more than to sift you like wheat, as Jesus told Peter at the end of John's gospel, as with Peter, no harm can befall you because Jesus prays for you. Even now, at the Father's right hand, He is making intercession for you. Jesus has sent His Spirit to be with you. Satan cannot undo what Jesus Christ Himself has done. And so it is by Christ's sovereign choice, all of you who believe, do believe, because He chose you. And if He chose you, then he has carefully orchestrated all things in this life so that you would hear the gospel and come to saving faith. Hear the words of the, of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer to that is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, 
all things must work together for my salvation. All things. God has so orchestrated this world and the events of it so that your salvation is taken care of. He's done it for you. He's done it for me. He's done it for everyone who ever will and ever has believed in him. And so you can take this to heart, brothers and sisters, that nothing happens to you by accident. Just as nothing happened to Jesus by chance. Everything, including Christ's painful betrayal by Judas, happened according to divine plan in order that every single one of the people that he chose would be saved. And if you trust in Him, in Him alone for your salvation, then you are one of those. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that You are sovereignly in control. We're thankful because we know that You chose those whom You did choose, not because of anything that was acceptable in your sight, not because of anything lovely about us, not because of any good thing that we would do. You chose us according to your mere good pleasure. And despite our great sinfulness, indeed our hate, our hatred of you, we thank you, O Lord, that you saw fit to redeem a people for yourself. And we are grateful that nothing, nothing, can take us out of that redemption. That nothing can remove us from your grace. Lord, we acknowledge that there are times where we deserve to be removed because we've sinned against you. We've sinned against our neighbor. But we are grateful that we aren't. That we are not kicked out away from your table. Gracious God, we are thankful. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.